Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode to have Mel Torrey. Mel, thanks for doing this. Glad to be here. So uh, I've got so many questions about different things, but let's start with uh, one of the most amazing robot companies in the world. Tell us about your business. Well, we do autonomous vehicles that are on the industrial side of the business spectrum. So we do mining trucks, farm tractors, construction equipment, yard trucks around distribution centers, golf course mowers, stuff like that. All autonomous, uh, unmanned. So uh, let's, let's start with this one. What does it take to <laughs> autonomously run a mining truck that's like as big as a house? Yeah, there's some serious stress about that because 400 tons is what the truck weighs and then 400 ton of material in the back of the truck. So when that is going at full speed, it takes two football fields to stop it, to push the brakes and to actually have it come to a stop. So multi-levels of safety around the braking systems and lasers and radars that can see out 300 meters to make sure you're anticipating kangaroos and pickup trucks and all those things because you can run over a pickup truck and not even slow the vehicle down or be aware that you have. So lots of safety and then lots of sensors, electronics, uh, lots of wiring harnesses to, to wrap that truck uh, with the intelligence to make it drive by itself. It's significant. Yeah. Uh, no kidding. Well, can we, to give people like, there's a lot of people who think stuff like this is interesting and they're playing around with it. And there's, there's not so yep. many people at your level. Can you give people some, some stats or some numbers to help them realize like the scale that you guys are? As far as the, the industry as a whole or our company? Your, your company. Yeah. Yeah. I would say one, the industry is really in its infant stages. Right now, it's still illegal to buy a robotic tractor in California. And so it's, it's kind of feeling like you're selling marijuana. There's certain areas where you can play and where you can't. So agriculture is largely just beginning. Mining, we're one of three out there uh, with Kat and Komatsu. And those quantities are really just in the hundreds. And for construction equipment, that's very early stages. I would say indoor factory warehouse kind of robots is where we have the thousands in the field. And that's been fairly mature because you can protect it and block people out of getting hurt. But when you're in a mine site or a farm or a construction site, exposure to the public or a golf course, we're doing golf course mowers right now. And so the biggest safety case is a three-year-old hiding behind a hill on a golf course. And so, uh, yeah, it's about to scale, which is exciting um, on the outside environment versus what we've been able to scale on the inside environment. So I would say quantities from everybody is in the low hundreds in as an industry as a whole. But with the labor shortages, the demand is just skyrocketing. It's how fast can you build these? We've got to have it soon. We just can't staff our mine site. We're parking trucks and waiting for drivers. And so it's a, a dire, a dire need. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, super fun to meet you, uh, us both being on the board there at Utah state on the entrepreneurship board. And, uh, yeah. and since then I have been watching all these videos about you. So I've got so many questions, but, oh, wow. The first one I want to talk about is kind of, I've heard you speak about this idea of taking Clayton Christensen's innovator dilemma type of, of concern for companies that 
have a hard time inventing internally and, and you guys getting, you know, $200 million from other businesses to basically do that for them. Can you explain that? Yeah, I was in a, a restaurant with a John Deere head of research about 24, 25 years ago. And he shared that principle that, hey, we as a big company are going to get disrupted because we just can't move quickly. Public earnings of a public, quarterly earnings of a public company makes it hard to truly make bets that are longer term. And so ultimately we get disrupted and we don't want to get disrupted. And so we really shared the business model of why they needed to partner with us. And so we took that model, we took the, the, those slides basically, and went to all these billion dollar companies and said, we're your answer to this book that you have on your shelf that says you're going to get surprised and, and dethroned. And so that was really the pitch. They really do struggle as public companies to, to get that new technology integrated and basically bootstrapped and started of a inside of a company that's just trying to keep their mainstay the next increment of improvement. So that's what we did. Basically a slide deck with his picture, the same plot that that John Deere executive put on a napkin and ran with it. And, and essentially it's this idea of like, they know they need to do this. They know it's going to be so hard to do internally. And you're saying, mm -hmm. hey, just put some money in with us and we can do it for you. And, and basically the big machine won't kill the innovation before it's done because it's being done outside the business. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is amazing how any company gets something done within that public framework. Uh, we, because we've worked with all these multi-billion dollar companies in the industrial segment, and it is hard. The demand for those incremental quarterly earnings versus the bigger picture, it just chokes things. And so we've been able to provide that, that outlet where they can interface to us, but it doesn't get sucked into some of the challenges of supporting the day-to-day -day and it's worked well. No kidding. Uh, so you do so many different things from helping military with like bomb disposal robots going into caves, self-driving lawnmowers. I mean, like the, the variance here is pretty interesting. Um, I, I think one of the other things that's interesting to me is kind of thinking for yourself on business structure and who you want to be and who you don't want to be. And uh, can you talk about your, your choice to become an ESOP and your choice to build these different units where you let, you know, giant companies be a part of one of your verticals, but not control your whole future and some of these thoughts? Yeah. So that's been quite a journey. I think being an engineer to begin with, and I was one of the, I was the programmer of the first tractors vehicle automation piece with some other coders that I do care about the engineers. I was one of them. And so how do I keep this a place that they want to work? How do I avoid what happened to so many of my friends at other companies where they sell to the highest bidder? And that's usually not a good journey. Uh, for the employees, obviously the founders, some of the early ones make a lot of money, but the, the people who are left are then pulled into a public company or somewhere that really chokes either the innovation or puts them as a third priority behind profits on the market and the customer. And so what are the mechanisms that I can do that? And the hardest part was not taking exit driven money, right? That's how do you capitalize and not take that money that forces that exit in three to six years, three to seven years. 
And so that's where the bootstrapping came in and the Clayton Christensen model. And then the mechanisms for the employee ownership, the ESOP felt like something that would drive the right behavior. Because if I gave them stock options, then they want to exit too. And if they have more than the new guys, then they do want to exit and leave those poor new guys with the next corporation that's going to put them as a lower priority. So the ESOP just fit my model of putting people first and making sure that everyone's an owner and that I can transition ownership to them as I go versus having to sell out. And then how do I bootstrap and compete with these 150, $200 million funded venture companies? I need a channel. And so I created a paper company for each of my markets and found the best channel partner I could in mining, for example. And with this created company, I sold 34% of that to secure that long-term relationship that they would be as motivated as me to sell the product. And now I have this channel around the world that's competing with Kat and Komatsu effectively. And I found the number one key is really alignment. I've got to find money that's aligned with what I want, which is longevity, taking care of people, the product's results, and not just an escalation of value to exit. And so finding partners that were aligned and then selling shares to them in a minority way so that I can keep control of the culture and yet have that strong channel to the market. And, and do you guys share publicly who that was? Or not so Yes, much? it was uh, Eperoc. Uh, they're a publicly traded company out of Sweden. And yeah, they're the world's largest drill manufacturer in that space and have dealerships around the world that support the product and sell for us. Support. So you, you basically had an in to like every mining, every mining market globally right off day one, huh? Yes. So tiny company compared to Kat and Komatsu. And through that sale, obviously they were aligned because they wanted our technology to help with their drills. So they're aligned with the technical solution working, but then also the revenues that come through their dealerships as we do these monster deals, that it, it's a win-win, we're all aligned. And so it made sense. They were willing to capitalize us and we didn't have to give up control or go to the market. Well, and I just thought, as I've listened to your other speeches, like this idea of alignment of like intentionally looking for somebody who wants to be in the business for the long haul, they're looking to do more business over the long haul, not get out of the business. And, yes. uh, and you know, this vision you have of having this be like an absolutely great place to work, attract the best talent, come up with the best innovations for the long haul, not up until we exit. And then it goes on this long decline of death. That's probably the biggest surprise of my career is realizing that the dream is to get into a business you like and then sell it. Like there isn't a path. Like there was an article in LinkedIn that talked to, here are the three exits for, here are the three paths for a robotics company. You can go out of business, you can go public or you can sell to someone. There was no option of build a great company that, as our vision statement says, that people want to work in even when they financially don't have to, that you will be the most productive if you truly make it a place where people want to be. And it's just not celebrated. It's not, there's, it's very hard to find a path there that 
can compete effectively with these venture-backed companies that are competing with me. So it's been quite a journey to figure it out. Well, and what's fascinating to me is like, people are so quick to point out Warren Buffett as such a great investor and businessman. Uh, and then, and then they're also just as quick to talk about like essentially gambling and speculating on the futures of businesses <laughs> and when they're going to exit and for how much. And like, yeah. if they, if people did what Warren Buffett did, like he's not in the business of selling companies. He's in the business of compounding cash flows, right? Yeah. And yeah. and strengthening cash flows and creating greater security for long term cash flows. And uh, you know, I made what I thought was a lot of money. Uh, two different times in my twenties and lost it both times, <laughs> and ah. and, uh, and then became a real devotee of Warren Buffett, right? And uh -huh. uh, and it's just shocking to me how much I didn't understand because I just took what I was fed of like make a lot and then go live the rest of your life having drinks on a beach somewhere, right? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. the thing about Warren Buffett is like he actually likes what he does, you know. He and Charlie in their 90s are, are still having fun. Like, no wonder yeah. they haven't gotten old uh, at the rate of their peers. They do what they love every great day. Great point. Right? Yeah, great point. And, uh, and so I, I do think about this. Like, so I can see in certain sectors and things, people want an exit so bad. Um, and there's certain not notoriety and it opens certain doors when you can say you've had such and such exit. But like... Yeah. I talk to these people after they exit too. And some of them are friends of mine. Some of them are former clients. Uh -huh. And they just immediately have to figure out how to redeploy that money into something else. <laughs> yes. And listen, if you think your business is shaky, I totally get it. Like get out, get out, redeploy it somewhere that has yeah. long-term security or something. But like, there's a lot of people that I feel like they sell and then they can't find anything as good as what they just sell, sold to buy. Yeah. And they go take a lower rate of return in something else where it's not in their circle of competence. And uh, all of a sudden, they're like playing this whole new sport of like, how do I not lose what I've got? And it's like, <laughs> yes. they just spent 20 or 30 years learning how to grow. And now they, they're like basically newbies at mm -hmm. capital preservation. Only the stakes are huge because they don't have enough time to do it over again. They don't have another 30 yeah. years to do it over again if they do it wrong. And anyways, it has, over time, I've become more and more inclined to your position of like, actually what I want is long-term cash flows that grow for eternity, not yeah. how do I just get one chunk once. Anyways, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, that's definitely what, what we're doing. And, but it's harder and it takes longer and it's not as glamorous. It's not celebrated. Like there's all the press is... Oh, he's serial. So he's hosed this many people because he's sold three times and we celebrate that. And yeah, I've had offers every year to sell for the last 22 years, but it's, it's not anything that anyone aspires to as far as building what you're talking about that, especially what's nice about the ESOP is you can just liquidate that over time and pass it on to other like-minded people and you're getting capital when you're selling your shares, you're getting capital from the profits and how you want to share it. But it's a lot harder when you're competing with most of my competitors get between 50 to 150 million and I'm bootstrapping. So it's a different kind of stress. I don't have investors yelling at me and freaking out about the exit and the multiple. 
but I wouldn't change the path. And it, it's exciting that the market's finally going to take off because obviously I cho brilliantly chose a market that 22 years later, the very tractors I started with are still illegal to sell, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel that they're going to get through that legal <laughs> stuff. So not too brilliant, but it's, it's exciting that it's coming. So, yeah, well, let's talk about this. You go from being an engineering student to, to growing a business that has hundreds of millions of dollars come through it. Right. Um, yep. what are, what are some of the lessons that the business books don't cover? What did you learn that you couldn't have learned any other way than actually doing it? Oh, that's a good one. I should take 10 minutes just pondering that one. I think the one of the first one was that the recipes in the books are not are not the answer, meaning there's some great principles there, but I remember it was probably five years in, I'm following everything from these books. And I am getting slammed with surprises that those none of that helped. Like because I don't know whether it's the stock market or they're just challenges that the recipes that have been distilled generally help with some principles, but they are not the the answer. They're not the it is not the guarantee, right? I followed I read every book and I followed to a T the distillation of best practices and I'm still facing, can't make payroll and how are we going to survive and where are we going to get the next credit card to keep it going? What I did find is that those people who are confident enough to write biographies, autobiographies that told the real journey, that's where the learning came. So I learned from a, a Richard Branson book far more because he's sharing the gory details of the garbage that happens and that none of those books can get you through or help you avoid it and be the answer. So I'd say the number one thing that there weren't, it wasn't in the books is that it's not in the books. So that's <laughs> one. The taxes are brutal. And by that, I mean, as a small company, you want stability to make payroll next month, but at the end of the year, they're going to take 25, 35, 40% of the money. And so as a small startup who needs cash flow, if you don't spend it, the government's taking a third of it. And that was just a surprise as a non an electrical engineer trying to run a business that I didn't anticipate. I think probably another big one is that Covey shared, make a mission statement and a vision statement and your values. And I did it because he said, but I had no idea why. And the why became, you can't truly scale unless you have these decision-making frameworks that really help your people understand what to do in a certain situation. And it's a decision-making framework where you could bring on a lot of people to make the kind of decisions that you would make without having to outline outline every single process. Does that make sense? So if you have a strong culture, you don't have to process this thing out to the level of detail that turns it into a bureaucracy and no thinking. And I just didn't get that. So I did put an emphasis on those three elements of a culture, mission, vision, values. I didn't understand the power of them and the why. It was kind of like, oh, we all know where we're going. No, this is 
this is the DNA that helps everybody make better decisions. Yeah. And, and then the final one is just that humble is the value that trumps all of them. It is the number one. Nothing else holds a candle to it. It has to be number one for any company I'm involved in because it enables all the others. Safety is the simplest one. Obviously, a 400-ton truck can run over your house. But if you don't have humility in your culture, then if, for a simple example, you're up on a ladder that's unsafe. If you're not humble as that leader and someone comes up and suggests that you get off that ladder, oh, yeah, how dare you talk to me like that? I'm the CEO. Or if the CEO comes up to some guy on a ladder and say, hey, you stupid idiot, we don't stand on ladders that only have three legs. You just can't have a safe culture. You can't have all the other values. Transparency is one of our values. You won't get that. Growth is another one of our values. You don't get growth if you don't have people who are interested in other people's input. And it took me 16 years to figure out that I needed to hire, reward, and fire based on the value of Humble alone. I'm so excited you brought this up. And I knew, I kind of thought you would. Okay. <laughs> um, it was a painful lesson. Well, I actually, before we go into this, I want to take one tangent and then I want to come back to this. Okay. So okay. tell people, let's give people some more scope. Tell people about some of the coolest things you guys have invented or some of the most technologically advanced things you guys have invented. Like give, give us a little more meat on the bones there. Oh, it's hard without video, but we have something called the guideline, which is a string that you put on the front of a vehicle and you can just grab that string and start running. It turns on the engine, shifts into gear, it starts to follow you. And you can turn around and start running back at the vehicle and it'll back up and you can park it onto a trailer, drive it backwards and it'll steer backwards like you were driving a truck. So that one gets most people excited. And we, we patented that and licensed it into General Dynamics in the military. That one, you just have to see the video. It's called Guideline. But I think the walking track vehicle for caves in Afghanistan that started with my kids' Legos and ultimately turned into a multi-million dollar program. That was unique. I think some of the early innovations around sensing, but we've done everything from autonomous backhoes that'll dig trenches by itself that we did with John Deere to the autonomous mining trucks, the largest vehicles in the world to under vehicle inspection that we sold into Iraq for looking under vehicles for bombs. And that was more like 10 pounds. So 10 pounds to 400 ton. And what was yeah, the form you, factor of the one under the vehicles? Is it just like some little, it deal looks with like a and... Roomba vacuum cleaner. Oh, really? Yeah. And, but it has a camera looking up with lights and then a, a sensor pod where you could put a sniffer for TNT explosives or sensors for automatically detecting the bombs. So that was. That was early stages. We we started the company with uh, some of that technology that we worked with at the university with the Department of Defense. We've done all kinds of lawnmowers, factory robots, construction uh, trucks, and excavators and bulldozers. And yeah, we've done over a hundred different kinds of vehicle platforms, but everything in the industrial space. And then we made a lot of platforms from scratch like the under vehicle inspection and the cave robots just to fill gaps in solutions where there aren't vehicles already out there. Okay. That's great. Okay. So I want to give people a little more context of like, just 
<laughs> how how many technologies and advancements you guys have done. Um, yeah, well, I guess one that I didn't mention is that the special sauce that we really bring is like running a whole mine site of lots of vehicles working together. So the current mine site we're working on, it's the largest deployment of autonomous vehicles in the world. And it- Is this one of the Australian locations or yeah. where is this one? Yeah, Australia. So 250 vehicles total in the ecosystem. And some of those are human-driven service trucks. Some of those are autonomous mining trucks and explosives trucks and things like that that are working intermingled with human. But it's that optimization of the flow of iron ore out of the mine or optimization of that golf course, course where we can coordinate all of the mowers and service vehicles with the golf carts and make sure that we're optimizing the experience of being on that course, but getting all the grass mode. And so I think the intelligence, the AI and machine learning of orchestrating an optimization with human vehicles and autonomous vehicles is probably the biggest differentiation. Well, and also how much of this can be done remote where people can live in Perth and control that out in the mine, right? And not, you know, those, those places that are very hard to staff, you know, we didn't talk about this on the show, but you and I grew up uh, not that far from each other out in, the, in yeah. the Alberta prairies of Western Canada. And we both have friends who didn't go to college. They went north to go work on the oil wells. Like, I didn't actually ask yes. you that. I just know that you did because we all do. Yes, right? oh, we do. And yeah, I think it is going to get crazy with. So just to give you an example. Yes, the, for the mine in Australia, people are able to work in Perth, instead of flying into the outback at a camp where they stay for two weeks and then come home and miss their kids' soccer games. And they've expressed that gratitude because now they can have a life and a family. And right now we, we control our golf course mowers from across the country with a cell phone. And we're going into Guatemala in February to prove that we can run a construction site through the Elon Musk Starlink satellite receiver. And so we're already doing that locally. And so now we're going to show we can run it from Guatemala and then Africa. So we don't have the labor in the US, but these other countries have 60, 65% unemployment. We're going to do a trial and show that with the low latencies and high bandwidth of these new radio communications through satellite, we can put workers like they're on site, but they will be thousands of miles away operating a backhoe or a bulldozer, things like that. Uh, and just quickly, while we're on the subject, will you tell people the name of the nonprofit work that you guys are doing in Guatemala? Yeah. Uh, the foundation is called the Wayne Julian Foundation. And the, the business initiative is called Innova. And so I'm actually taking a bunch of entrepreneurs who want to learn how to do what we've done in business, but also give back during the day. So in the evenings, we'll be doing workshops and during the day, they will help us explore setting up businesses like controlling construction sites remotely in these impoverished nations. Uh, so people want to find out about that. What's the website or should they connect with you on LinkedIn or what's best? I think LinkedIn is the best. Uh, you can also just search for Wayne Julian Foundation, but uh, my LinkedIn under Mel Torrey is a great place. And how do, I, how do I spell your last name correctly? It's T-O-R-R-I-E. Perfect. Okay. So um, I wanted that context because I've been lucky enough to have 
a, a number of people, you know, three of the interviews in the last seven days are folks who have built or invested in companies that went from zero over a billion, okay? And um, I heard the same message from them that I've been hearing for a few years on the show, like the most elite entrepreneurs and investors is this idea of like um, listening, humility, uh, continuous improvement, like at a level that everyone else pays lip service to. And these people like yeah. having the bones and like, so I'm kind of grouping those together, humility, listening, like obsessiveness of what's in it for the customer, obsessiveness of, of never being done, constantly trying to make things better for the, for the customer. Right. And then this other side of recruiting, like just the, the idea of like the scalable CEO is like the most learning mindset CEO, humble enough to learn, wanting to learn and good at getting the top people to want to come join this team. Mm. Do you see it differently than that? Or, or what do you think of that premise? No, that is a great, that really nails it for me because we, we call it, we use the 8D process from Ford uh, that is a root cause analysis to help your company. And so just with all the adversity we've been through, we've seen that you can either respond in a way that makes you better and it's a stepping stone versus a stumbling block and just maniacal. And so in our, in a report I get from my people and the, since I can't ask people to do what I wouldn't do myself, I send them a, my report in how I've done in the goals for the quarter. The question in there is anything that ha that's happened in the last two weeks, you never want to happen again. And a link to follow these processes of getting better constantly. We have to always be asking and have a, a nice structured approach to becoming a better company. How do you infuse that into your DNA? What are the, the ways of making sure you're hiring based on the lessons you're learning? How do you make sure that this isn't just a process you put in a, in a drawer somewhere, but we live it and just maniacal about that improvement. I love that. And then as we've learned that value is the number one value, you've got to figure out how to attract those kind of people. And so that video I did at USU, we had people that said that video was the difference. I need to work for that guy that are just coming out of the woodwork because they've seen that video and I will do anything when I will sweep the floors. I must just come and work for a culture like that. And so how, you've got to get that message out there. That video has been one of the most effective. And so now it's a part of recruiting as they give them the link to that video I did at that business school and that that brought people to the door. I've watched that one, but mm -hmm. do you remember what the title is? Because I, I think it's on the channel for like, the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. But yeah. Do you remember what the title of that one was? Dang it. I don't. That's, okay. that's what I we'll Google. We'll put it in the show notes. Everybody, if you're, okay. if you're listening to this and you're not on YouTube, go to YouTube and we'll put this in the description on YouTube for that video. Okay. Yeah, um, that just nails what you've said because that's what helped bring the kind of people that I want to find. Both they're culturally aligned and they're motivated to go make a difference really do big things. Well, and I want to, so I want to talk about how you um, hire, train, and fire for humility. But just before, mm. I want to touch on something you brought up about adversity and about like the real gritty truth. Can you talk about like 
things are going great and don't know how to spend the millions of dollars to you're out of money, don't even can't even get <laughs> don't even have gas money to get to the event you're speaking at, and wow, somebody steals fifteen million research. bucks from you. Yeah, you've done your homework. And so your question was, how do you recover from that? Or well, how just do you give get people a little bit of just... context for what I just said. Yeah. Well, the 2008-9 was definitely a great example where we went from everyone in the industry wanting to work with us in robotic mining equipment because the industry was taking off. These mines came out with mandates. There was one in Australia that said everything's going autonomous. So we had every manufacturer of a drills pleading to work with us. Every So we had this backlog and we were, how do we choose between these partners and you spend this money and do this work? And then within four weeks, our biggest mining partner was laying off 16,000 people. And we went from every industry just skyrocketing to government research and onesie twosies left. And, and so that crash, and then my CFO realized we weren't going to make it. And so he packed up his box and was leaving. and. He passed my son who suffered from depression and had been bullied that day at school and he was on his way to his death. And so he died in a rollover in a police chase because uh, the the police wanted to bring him home safely anyway. And so I have my CFO quitting and there's no chance they're going to make it. I'm flying to Toronto to try to convince the largest gold mining company in the world to buy a bulldozer, please. and and then lose your son. And so that we went from, we cannot spend all the money. We cannot deliver all the product that everyone in the world wants to, we're having to use life insurance and the, the vehicle insurance uh, that my son totaled in his death to make the next payroll and, and having to tell some people that we had to let them go. And luckily we got a bunch of those back, but that went from prosperity to just tough in in weeks really and so that was quite a crash for a lot of people but the, so i would say it's those kinds of things that richard branson would share in a biography and be very clear about this isn't in a book anywhere and you can follow all the recipes in the world it won't prepare you to to get through some of those things so that was an example well see i was a fan just from hanging out with you at the board meeting but uh -huh. after I watch the video, so the video that's going to be in the description goes through everything Mel just talked about. But this attitude, like I'm such a Viktor Frankl fan. So seeing you quote him and, uh, and talking about ultimate responsibility and and like, you know, talking about your wife, you know, being sexually abused by her dad and talking about, uh, a, you know, adoption and and uh, maybe, maybe you could give people a couple more of those stories and and. Uh, well, will you start with the cystic fibrosis guy and then tell those ones? <laughs> sure. <clears throat> yeah. So coming to grips with that, that challenge of losing my son and the businesses on the rails for, for, I mean, we couldn't afford a tombstone for about a year and a half. And, and so it was just paycheck to paycheck, just staying alive. And I I read the story of a man who had cystic fibrosis, was having a really rough go, and 
pretty upset at life and frustrated. And he was in a surgery and he had a dream that he was in a room and he heard this person lecturing about life and what we were here for. And that some of these diseases like cystic fibrosis are a fast track to learning those things and becoming better. And, and then he saw himself in the back of that classroom, raise his hand and volunteer for cystic fibrosis. And that shook me. And then as I looked at all of my situations and, and then looked for why would I have possibly volunteered for this? And then how do I respond so that I will one day look back and be glad that it happened? And then that became a quest that has changed my life because whether it's sitting in traffic jam and why would I have shouted for joy and been happy about this? Well, maybe it's that I listen to this audiobook and I get a brilliant idea for the business or that I have this call with my daughter in LA and, and help her out. And so every event became, how can I respond so that I'll be happy this happened? And, and that's that continuous improvement. So anything that happens at the business, this is an opportunity to get better. You embrace that. How do you look back at that $5 million crash that, cause your engineer didn't uh, put that line of code in or solder that wire right and make you a much, much better company. And then that becomes the quest. And it's not about beating them. It's about celebrating the $5 million lesson and figuring out how to become what it, I would call orchestrated to be. How do we yeah. learn from that? And so then that, that changes your perspective. So because you're, as I, you're, yeah, go ahead. Your daughter uh, was or originally adopted by your sister or your wife's sister? Great question. So, my, the daughter, uh, Olivia, that um, we've adopted, she was born to a homeless lady in Kansas. And, and so, growing up with that, you could get pretty insecure about that background. And, but she was adopted by a, my sister-in-law so my my sister's brothers uh, and her and his wife and so they adopted her and and then she died the mother died about uh, 4 years 5 years after that and then uh, we've been able to adopt her and so with her perspective she can look at the why would i have been happy to be born to a homeless lady living on the streets. Well, she was able to give a paraplegic who my sister-in-law was the chance to raise a child for four years before she passed. And then that we could have that joy in our, our home and that she could take that as a self-esteem that, Hey, I volunteered so that this paraplegic could have four years to raise a child. Or I could look at it as I was born to a homeless lady and I am of little value or low value. I wasn't wanted. I was uh, discarded. And I'm really excited about those kinds of perspectives that turn what would be so negative into the opposite. And just like that $5 million truck accident, right? You're, you're turning that $5 million 
mining truck accident into the best thing that happened to the company because of what we learned and grew from it. And we haven't had a $5 million truck accident, but that's the kind of switch you can make. Well, it's such a radically optimistic mindset. I mean, for anybody who hasn't read Man's Search for Meaning, please go buy that book and hear about how Viktor Frankl did it in the yeah. in the concentration camps when the Nazis had taken away his whole life, taken away his research, murdered his family, and he chose this. I mean, you hear things like, you know, talking about your wife overcoming a, a background of sexual abuse, uh, losing your son. I mean, these are things that people in general don't think there could be anything good that come out of them. Uh, so it's inspiring for me to hear you, like not hypothetically talking about somebody else, but like talking about <laughs> you and your own family's life and, and talking about how you've embraced this full, like Viktor Frankl, uh, like yeah. ultimate responsibility, deep accountability. I mean, this is such a tough subject, losing a child, right? When you think about anything that you learned because of it, or you benefited because of it, what would you say to that? Yeah, it's been a wonderful quest because you just keep adding to it, right? That, what would I say to that? The, the one is that you lose fear because if I can get through that, I can get through anything. I can have peace and comfort as I spiritually seek uh, guidance and peace and things like that, that you gain that, that you could never gain through going through anything else. So I used to worry about the future and I had an employee talk to me and said, aren't you panicking for where the world is going and the war that's happening in Russia and they're attacking the Ukraine where we have mining trucks running and how do you sleep at night? And what, after going through that experience and finding peace and happiness in it, that's a great win. But then you, you tell that story and the, the people that we've been able to help with that story and to change that perspective. And because it really is, as I have discovered is the healthiest response. I try to say that humbly that you could have to anything that happens to believe that you had a choice in it. And just like weightlifting at a, a weight room, it's the muscle ripping experiences of those barbells that helps make you stronger. If you look at anything negative in your life and turn it into lifting barbells, then you, you change that perspective. And so being able to share that with so many people that have come to us, I think that one video on, just had thousands of people that watched that and then thanked me and changed their perspective of all of the bad things that have happened in their life from spiraling into depression to empowerment of the most optimal response to the negative. Well, uh, it's inspiring to me. So hopefully everybody oh, will well, we'll we'll finish this and watch that next. Um, so I know we're, I know we're closing in on time. And, and I want to be respectful of your time, but can you please talk about, let's go back to work and talk about tactically what this looks like, where you guys hire for humility, you know, train for humility and fire for humility or lack thereof. Yeah. When I, when I had that, so the Eureka really came in 2016 when I read Steve Jobs biography and realized I need to do what he did, which is simplify technology and make it easy so a three-year-old could use an iPad and I've got to make a mining truck that can, a mining truck system that could be operated by the mining truck operators that used to drive them that don't have an education in Africa. And, 
And I got very depressed because I couldn't do what he was so good at, which is telling people their babies are ugly, that that engineering invention that you brought forward is not acceptable. And once I figured out that humble is my approach, that if I have people around me asking for if their baby's ugly, is this an is this approach simple enough, easy enough, then that's what I can prosper in. So interviewing for it, we are continuously trying to improve that process. What are the questions? Do you have to take them all out to lunch and see how they treat the waitress? And then when you refine those questions and get good references, once you get them in the door, how do you train for it? How do you reward it? And so every quarter we have an anonymous survey where the managers are all rated on how humble they are. And there are certain questions that we've refined over time that these employees can anonymously share their feelings about their leaders. And once we started that, we had the three lowest scores leave the company within six months. And because they were so furious that they couldn't figure out who said that about them. And I will take care of him and I will go fix this. It really helped get those people out that weren't humble, but also it helped everyone understand what we rewarded. And that came into performance reviews. How were the people feeling about working with them? Were their ideas valued when there was a problem? Did you respond in a way that they would still want to come to work tomorrow, even if they weren't paid and and just really set a high bar. And so that DNA infusion of Humble has come through surveys. It's coming through one-on-one interviews, through celebrating and rewarding any instances that truly reflect a great humble response to situations. And then firing, you get the culture you tolerate. And so you have to be deliberate. That's the most important value. So that's the one that has to have the lowest tolerance for the kinds of things that just don't check the box for humble. Yeah. Without naming names, can you give us an example of, you know, I feel like we all, everybody leading organizations know we're supposed to hire slowly and fire quickly. And most of us do the reverse, (laughs) right? Yes. Yes. Can you give us any stories of like, here's someone that maybe would have made it another organization that we let go or. Yeah. I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble or get, get me in trouble. No, I think, I mean, it's the kinds of behaviors that when they're, and the biggest problem we have with humility is department to department. You'll be, you'll be humble with your own team, but when it comes to purchasing messed up or HR messed up my benefit, or those are the situations where we, we have had to let people go is that they just, when they're, and so that's, that's the criteria. We have three litmus tests for humility. And the one is, can you respond to a perceived shortcoming of another department in a way that they'd still want to come to work tomorrow, even if they financially didn't have to. And that's, that is so tough because everyone's making mistakes. Do you seek to understand, seek to be understood, and then get on board with the second best decision? That is the number one thing that has filtered because that's, that's hard. People have made you look bad. They haven't been able to help you deliver your product when you wanted to. And do you take ownership of the problem and try to come in and ask how you can help? Or do you treat them negatively? Uh, 
protect your pride, protect your reputation. I feel like I, now I need to sit for 10 minutes and think about that. <laughs> um, I, I want to circle back to something I said earlier because I feel like you've added to it today. Um, when I said like, I keep talking to these, like I talk, I get to talk to a lot of great entrepreneurs and then every once in a while I get these just super elite entrepreneurs on the show. Right. And like at that super elite level, it's almost like there's this sheer obsession with, can we make something? Can we make a product an offering that is so magnetic? We like, we can't keep it in stock. You know, like, we don't need amazing sales teams. Like minimal sales effort gets exponential return. You know, like, like it's all about this product market fit that is so clearly exactly the, 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 the hole in a customer's life that they, that they can't possibly get anywhere else because it is so perfectly crafted for what they need at the price point, at the timing, all these things. That, that, that is like the secret of just this absurd, absurd, financial success for these organizations and that how you get that is getting the best minds to want to join your team to to work yep. on that and just just like consistent humble listening learning it yep. is 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 like the the main pieces like the two main principles in that equation that end up with the kind of product that has so much product market fit you can't keep up to demand kind of a thing. And yeah. uh, it's like, I feel like you, again, just illustrate this idea of like humility as a competitive advantage. Yeah. And the thing I would add to the two that you've listed, which are exactly correct, would be that no matter how smart they are, you get the smartest out of every room, out of every meeting, out of a team of people. So you can get the smartest people from the big robotics universities, but if they're all the the prideful jerks, you're in trouble. You, I will take two humble guys over the the genius any day. And so what humble brings that then is the optimal value because people want to bring it because they're enabled and rewarded for bringing it. So I think you attract the best people, you bring the very best out of them as a team and you listen to that customer and nail what they need. No, I appreciate that clarification because you are so right. Smart does not encapsulate it. You know, like everybody knows how hard it is to become a Navy SEAL. People hear like, oh, 80% of people wash out, right? Yeah. What we don't hear as often is like the tier one units, like the special mission unit for the army, right? Uh -huh. It's 95% can't make it. Well, so arguably four times harder, right? You know what I mean? And yeah. those, those guys, we have many of them on the show. Some of them are business partners of mine or have run the charity for us or volunteer yeah. at Child Rescue. Um, they will tell you they're not looking for the best guy. They're looking for the right guy. You know, it's like that mm. Disney movie miracle about the hockey team who beat the Russians. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they're not looking for the best hockey players. They're looking for the right hockey players. Um, you know, and, and they there's this saying inside of Delta, uh, selection is an ongoing process. You know? Oh. Nice. Like yeah. you are not guaranteed your spot because it's a no fail mission. You know, we got to stop a nuclear bomb. We've got to save yeah. thousands of lives. Like these are no fail missions. Nobody gets to stay on the team because we like you. Like you have to, you have to continue to bring your A game and be the right person for the team, which means working with others. And, and these guys are not like, 
humility isn't something that you naturally think of when you think of meat eaters like this. Do you right. know what I mean? And yet, oh, yeah. what I find is like the higher up the food chain in the special operations community you go, the more humility is there because there's like this deep self-confidence that they don't need to be that like, have this like cardboard cutout version of themselves they all hope you believe in. They actually know yeah. they have the skill set, so they don't need to prove it to you and they don't need you to worship them. And the, you know what I mean? Where like lower down, yeah, yeah. it can be like, don't you know how tough I am? A, a, yes. a little bit sometimes, right? And obviously no generalizations are correct. But like, as you're talking, I'm hearing like, when you said the best people, that's much more than the smartest, right? It's intelligent, insightful, teachable, can work with a team, can can prod the team to more like I'm what would you put on that list for the best people? I think Patrick Lencioni with the ideal team player, probably the most profound, simple, which is just hungry, humble, smart. That mm. if you've got the humble and then you've got the hungry, they're motivated and driven, and then you've got smart, which is people smart. And so the emotional intelligence, that is the simplest, most profound recipe that. I have found and then was excited that he put it in a book because he, that is unstoppable. It yeah, really is. That's great. Yeah. Listen, we've covered so many things here. Um, thank you for letting us go over time. Apologize. Uh, best places online. Do you want to give us the websites and, and uh, it sounds like LinkedIn if they want to connect with you. Yeah. LinkedIn is great under Mel Torrey, T-O-R-R-I-E. ASIRobots.com is our website and you can send a message through either of those and you should be able to get a hold of me. And the, if you search for the WayneJulianFoundation.com or search for Innova, we'd love to take you to Guatemala or Africa with us and, and, and workshop around building great companies that are, I think both worth nine figures, but also that you wouldn't want to sell. And that's kind of the combination that I don't want to just sell these people to the highest bidder. I care about them and it's something I want to keep doing. So yeah, come with us on a trip, explore that and give back while we're doing it or come to that uh, LinkedIn page and connect. It'd be fun. Final question here. What's when it comes to founders, CEOs, when it comes to scaling ourselves. So as the business grows, the business does now grow us. What, what's one more principle? Okay, let's just be selfish. Jess, I want to be better. What's one more principle? If I want to be more like Mel, what's one more principle that I could, you know, that all founders, all CEOs could probably embrace to scale themselves uh, as they try to scale an organization to, to upgrade themselves? Love it. I think there are a couple of things, but I would say the number one is get clarity to your mission, vision, values, structure, and strategy so that you can multiply yourself through others that you have done such a good job of articulating it and measuring it that, for example, with me, we have the, those values articulated. We have ways of measuring. And so I can have 15 minutes with a leader every two weeks, and I know decisions are going to be made right that are optimal because the people in the know are making the decisions and they've got humble people around them. I'm going to be alerted through multiple channels, whether they're not being humble. They, I've done a good job at articulating what does humble really mean and what does that look like? 
our vision of helping make it a place you want to work, even when you financially don't have to, they can conceive of what that looks like. That bar is so high that when I go on the purchasing messed up, they know what's out of bounds for that interaction. And so I think getting clarity to that, who you are and the principles that guide decision-making and a structure around that. You have to have that structure because you can uh, hypothesize, you can share all kinds of dreams about the culture you want, but you got to have a structure, a framework around measuring it that truly is hands-off for you so that the the information can come on your, your kind of exception handling, but your organization can scale around you the way you want it to, which is a place you'd want to still work even when you financially don't have to. And I'm fortunate to be one of those who doesn't financially have to stay there because I could sell. And I want everyone to have that same driver. So that's what I would say. Clarity to those those key things and then a system to make sure that you can measure it. My, that's like a mic drop right there. That's awesome. Ah, that was tough. <laughs> okay, everyone. Oh, you're kind. Thanks so much for watching. No, thanks for doing this. Yes, it was awesome. Thanks. Okay, bye, everyone.